here today with Scott Rank, the host of History Unplugged podcast. And Scott happens to be an expert on U.S. presidents. <laughs> How do I set this one up? It's this is such a great idea. <laughs> did, now, is Presidential Fight Club a current series of yours or is it one you did in the past? Uh, it's one I did in the past. This was an offshoot of my main podcast, History Unplugged. Okay. So this was a 44-episode series, but now it's been spun off into its own podcast, and it's uh, all wrapped up. The fight is complete. So if you just look for Presidential Fight Club okay. on iTunes or wherever, then you can find it. Okay. And what he does is he matches up different U.S. presidents, and he's going to set up the ground rules for us. And we're going to get in the ring with some of these uh, presidents with some unusual matchups and see who's still standing at the end. I hope you listeners uh, enjoy this one. This, this should prove to be very entertaining. Uh, Scott, where did you get the idea for this? Yeah, so I am good friends with another historian named James Early. Uh, James is an instructor at San uh, Jacinto College in Texas, and I teach as an adjunct at the University of Kansas. And we bandy around a lot of different ideas with history. And this is something we've come back to a lot where it's always fun to match up U.S. presidents on different criteria. And every few years, uh, C-SPAN releases a poll called the Presidential Historian Survey, where historians rank presidents based on criteria like crisis leadership, economic management, moral authority, and there's some other criteria as well. But I noticed on lots of different websites that people loved to ask the hypothetical question, if all the presidents fought each other in a battle royale, who would win? And I don't mean fight in the argumentative philosophical sense. I mean, in the fistfight sense. And I think this I, this question really got kicked up about 10 years ago when there were pictures of Vladimir Putin shirtless and riding horses and doing archery and just trying to be over the top macho. And people would ask, uh, so if George W. Bush or Barack Obama fought Vladimir Putin one-on-one, -on -one, would they win? And the answer was, well, of course not. He has a black belt in judo. He was a KGB officer, so he certainly has hand-to-hand -hand combat training. Uh, okay, but what about other U.S. presidents? And so I've seen lots of things online where people ask that question. So James Early and I thought, okay, let's sit down and really hammer this out. And let's have a NCAA-style tournament bracket where you have um, different brackets and then you have champions and then you have a final four in order to determine qualitatively and quantitatively who would actually win if all the presidents fought each other one-on-one. -on -one. <laughs> and what criteria did you use to judge this fight? Okay, so there's some simple things. If we consider their height, their weight, I wrestled, I'm from Iowa, so I understand the importance of that. But then there's other qualities like military experience, combat experience. Have they studied any martial arts? Uh, did they know military strategy? Were they generals? Were they wrestling champions in their town or county or boxing champions? We actually have quite a few of those among presidents. But then we get into more of the intangibles, like um, how could you psychologically outwit an opponent? And this is important because some of the great sports figures in history, like Michael Jordan, were famous at taunting and trash talking and psychologically shutting people down on the court. So we look at that. Uh, so at least for the purposes that James and I did, we divided the 44 presidents into four groups of 11. And um, within each group, we gave them a seed, like in the NCAA tournament. And the seed was how well we think they do into hand-to-hand -hand combat. Oh, and also I should mention... All the presidents, we assume they're at about the ages of 30 to 35, because it's not fair for someone like FDR. He has polio by the time he's president. So so he, this that's not the FDR you see in this tournament. You see the strapping young man um, who can walk. He's pretty vigorous at that age. Um, and then at least when James and I were doing the tournament, uh, he moderates a Facebook group called American History Fanatics, and people would vote on who they think would win the fight. So we use those results. Um, so it was sort of easy. We had the decision made for us, but then each of us would uh, defend our president and why we think they would win. So we really dig into the criteria. Um, and it's a silly idea, but I was surprised at how much I learned about presidents by doing this that I don't think I would have learned if I were looking at a more boring angle of their presidency, like their economic management during their term. Yeah, it's a great direction to come from, and, and I'm really looking forward to this because I think we are going to learn quite a bit about presidents that uh, that we didn't know before. The first the first uh, pair that you've got on the docket here is Andrew Jackson and James Buchanan. 
<laughs> so we're going to start with a pretty obvious one. If any of you know about American history, you can probably guess who's going to win. So uh, let me just go over some of Buchanan's background, and then I'll go over Jackson's as well. So Buchanan, he's six foot tall. He's 217 pounds, widely considered to be the one of the worst presidents in American history, definitely in the bottom three. Uh, very inept president right before Abraham Lincoln can't handle um, secession and the Civil War breaking out. Uh, in terms of his qualities, he's quite squeamish. Uh, for example, after his inauguration, the Supreme Court ruled in the Dred Scott case that African-Americans could never be U.S. citizens. And Buchanan allegedly influenced the case's outcome and thought it would permanently put slavery to rest. So that quality of squeamishness probably won't help him in the ring. Um, in terms of how he is physically, he was about six foot tall. He had broad shoulders, but he was paunchy. Uh, he loved to drink, especially he's sort of a foppish dandy and like, like lighter, fruitier, alcoholic drinks. Um, he is described as having a massive forehead and had rather small feet for his size and took quick steps. Um, his most distinctive feature, um, was that his head was continually cocked to the left uh, because he had a weird eye disorder where one eye was nearsighted and the other was farsighted. Uh, so to compensate, he would cock his head in and close one eye, looking really squinty. Um, so he coped with this disorder by, he didn't wear glasses, but his health overall wasn't very sound. So one of Buchanan's eyes twitched, um, which combined with his personality led one biographer to describe him as a fidgety little busybody. So doesn't really look good in the ring anyway. Uh, when you compare him to Andrew Jackson, um, Andrew Jackson is uh, just about the opposite. Uh, if you compare him to Buchanan, um, he's a thin wiry guy. He's six foot one. He's 154 pounds military experience. He was in the Tennessee state militia. He was in the Continental Army. He was only 14. He was only a teen during the Revolutionary War, but still participated. He uh, was famous uh, for um, his troops. He and his troops decisively winning the Battle of New Orleans in the waning moments of the War of 1812. Uh, so he had a famously fiery temper, which some scholars described it as biblical fury. Uh, he grew up in the Appalachia region. Um, in the, he had Scotch Irish background, Scotch Irish roots. He was uh, also fond of wrestling at the time, which is the frontier sport. So, according to one contemporary who squared off against him, he said about Jackson, "I could throw him three three times out of four, but he'd never stay thrown." So he just absolutely refused to give up. Um, and another aspect of his fiery temper is that. He's rumored to have fought over a hundred duels in his life. We, we have quote unquote, only 14 that are verified, but they mostly have to do with slanders against his wife, Rachel due to rumors that they had an affair and married before Rachel finalized her divorce. Uh, never mind the fact that that is basically true according to biographers of him. Uh, but I just want to recount one duel to give you a sense of how well he do in a fight. Uh, so one happened when Jackson was a sitting U.S. congressman. In 1806, Charles Dickinson argued over horse racing with Jackson, but slurs against Rachel probably entered the discussion because pistols were drawn. So Jackson demanded, demanded that he get satisfaction for the insults offered, which meant a duel. And Je Dixon, Dickinson was 17 years younger than Jackson and rumored to be an excellent shot, but that didn't sw uh, slow down Jackson at all. So the two men face each other on May 30th, 1806. Dickinson was given the right to fire first. So the shot aimed at Jackson's heart, but it didn't drop him. So Dickinson had no idea how Jackson was still standing. So Dickinson was ordered back to the mark as Jackson fired, and his bullet entered Dickinson's groin, passed through the intestines. 14 hours later, he died. So one theory of how Jackson survived is that Jackson wore a bulky overcoat and he twisted his torso so that he wasn't directly facing Dickinson, but turned against him so that mm -hmm. the bullet would hit his rib cage instead of his front. Um, so he's thought to have been shot about nine times in his life. Also, famously, when Jackson was president, there was an assassination attempt on him. The attempt failed, 
and Jackson repeatedly beat his um, attempted assassin with his cane before a crowd subdued him. Uh, so yeah, he is uh, really tough, and you're probably not surprised that, according to the voting results, uh, Andrew Jackson defeats James Buchanan in the first match. <laughs> and Jackson must have been intimidating in the ring, too. He had a scar, didn't he, uh, from a uh, British uh, saber on the front of his face? Right. I think when he was 13 or 14 years old, he was captured in the American Revolutionary War. He was told to sit down by a British officer. Jackson refused, and he faced the business end, probably at the, the butt end of a musket, uh, from what I understand. Or No, you're right. Maybe it was a saber as well, but... He, um, yeah, was was not afraid. He was not intimidated, even at a very young age. And the next one you've got, JFK versus Chester A. Arthur. It's going to be interesting. I know very little about Chester A. Arthur, so this is going to be an interesting matchup. Yeah, this one is a little bit more evenly matched. And I think 10 or 20 years ago, if you ask someone this question, they'd say, oh, of course, JFK. I mean, we think of him as a young, vigorous president. He has small children when... He's a president because he's very young comparatively. Uh, he's in his 40s when he's elected. But we know now that Kennedy actually wasn't that healthy in his life. Uh, he was always sickly. Um, and it was a very well-kept secret in uh, recent U.S. history. But um, in 1960, during the fight for the Democratic nomination, Aides to Lyndon B. Johnson told the press that Kennedy suffered from Addison's disease. This is a condition of the adrenal glands that um, is a deficiency of the hormones needed to regulate blood sugar uh, and the response to stress uh, required regular doses of cortisone. Uh, so according to recent historical accounts of JFK, he was ailment ridden for his entire life, even though he looked vigorous. Uh, he suffered from ulcers. Uh, he endured terrible back trouble as well. Despite all that, I still think he would have given Chester A. Arthur a run for his money uh, just for how vigorous he was despite his health problems. And let me just give one episode from his life. Uh, in August 1943, when Kennedy was serving World War II, his boat was ripped in two by a Japanese destroyer. The boat was unsalvageable and the crew was disoriented. There were flames everywhere. Uh, Kennedy had chronic back pain. He had a newly ruptured spinal disc. Despite that, he swam for four hours to an island with his... He also did this while towing an injured crewman by the life jacket strap. And he did this while towing him with his teeth. So, um, he was... That's a, that's a case of mind over matter, right? Stamina, there. yep. Yeah, absolutely. Um, okay, so Chester A. Arthur, he was president from 1881 to 1885. Uh, he was a machine party boss in uh, New York. So following the Civil War, many cities were one-party towns where machine bosses picked candidates. They handed out government jobs as favors. They used public money to give as kickbacks to their friends. And they were sort of like these little miniature unelected Caesars in their hometowns. I'm from Kansas City, and we had a wonderful machine boss in the 1920s named Tom Pendergast. Um, yeah, so Chester A. Arthur um, ran the New York Customs House. This is where the government collected tariff revenues on goods imported to the U.S. And it was run by only three officials, and Arthur was one of them. He was the collector, so he had power over a thousand jobs and could hire and fire whoever he wanted. And he could choose political candidates by throwing donations and volunteers their way. Uh, so he even had enormous influence on who became president. And Arthur got this job by wheeling and dealing, shaking hands, doling out favors to people. Uh, eventually, Rutherford B. Hayes fired Arthur from the customs house, and he became Arthur became vice president under James Garfield by wheeling and dealing. And um, that's how he maneuvered his way into this position. And the way that um, Arthur became president was because Garfield up and died. Now, ironically, uh, Arthur actually reformed the corrupt machine system, and he launched investigations um, that reduced the power of these machines. So he was surprisingly not corrupt as president um, in light of his background. Um, so anyway, in light of his fight with JFK, uh, he sounds like a pretty weaselly person, and he really is. So he's not going to do a great job against him. How was he? And, how was he physically? Was he a big guy? Um. 
I think he was pretty imposing. Um, I don't have the stats in front of me. I might have to pull those up later. Now, something that's tricky about these presidents in the late 19th century is that in the shadow of the Civil War, almost everybody can claim to some type of military experience. But the Civil War is one of those battles where you can basically raise up your own group. You can... um, There's not a fine distinction between uh, the National Guard and these ragtag group of militiamen uh, in the Civil War. So you can get honorary commissions, but they don't amount much more than marching in a parade or a few times. Mm-hmm. So Arthur has some military experience, but it doesn't really mean anything. So it's yeah. not like today where being a general or being an officer really means something. Back then, not so much. Uh, so Arthur is, uh, but l- let me just give one childhood story about him um, that relates to his life that kind of gives you an idea of how well he do in a fight. Uh, when Chester was a boy, you might see him watching the boys building a mud dam across uh, the rivulet in the roadway. Pretty soon, he'd be ordering this one to bring stones and other sticks and others mud to finish the dam. And they'd all do his bidding without question. But he took good care not to get any dirt on his hands. So he can manipulate other people to do his bidding, but in terms of actually getting his hands dirty, not too well. So JFK would definitely take him out in a fight. So I wanted to give these two test cases of Andrew Jackson versus James Buchanan and JFK versus Chester A. Arthur. Those were the very, very one-sided matches in our tournament. But as we get further along, uh, it becomes much more brutal and we have much stronger contestants that are entering the ring. JFK wins. JFK wins it. Next matchup we have is George Washington versus Thomas Jefferson. Well, uh, between these two, uh, so Washington is very large. He's six foot two, six foot three. We don't know his exact weight. Um, he's probably over 200 pounds. Uh, he is enormous for the time of the Revolutionary War. Um, and he's also very hardy. So he doesn't come from a privileged background. Um, other men of privilege that may most of our founding fathers might have been brought up reading books in their warm colonial houses. Washington was a surveyor in the backwoods of the Ohio Valley. He made rafts out of trees with his bare hands and below freezing temperatures. He hacked out paths through the woods and the mountains. And he was very uh, physically impressive, too, when he was a soldier. Uh, so American hard artist uh, Charles Wilson Peel, he recalls one episode when there were visitors at Mount Vernon. Um, this is actually after the point he's a soldier. This is in the 1770s, in 1773. And there was a competition to see how far they could throw an iron bar across the lawn. So Washington appeared. He held out his hand for the iron bar. And according to Peel, no sooner did that heavy iron bar feel the grasp of his mighty hand that it lost the power of gravitation and whizzed through the air, striking the ground far, very far beyond the utmost limits. As he walked away, Washington observed, when you beat my pitch, young gentleman, I'll try again. So very strong. (laughs) He was... he was a sportsman. He uh, he was a swimmer. He was a wrestler. Again, popular in the frontier days. He was a pool shark. Thomas Jefferson said he was the best horseman of the age. Um, letters indicate that Washington played strenuous games with his aides to camp during the Revolutionary War. Uh, he was a devoted student of sword fighting. Again, obviously, uh, the general of the Continental Army. So he understood military tactics very well. Uh, As a soldier, he wouldn't be trained in hand-to-hand combat the way that modern-day soldiers would today. A soldier at that time, if you were trained in fighting, a lot of it would have been bayonet fencing because you would have a bayonet uh, attached at the end of your musket. Uh, So hand-eye coordination, he would have had that skill down well, but... He wouldn't be as he wouldn't be trained as well as a modern day soldier, but still for his age doing very well. And Jefferson was a contemporary of him. So that comes into play. Uh, Jefferson. So let's take a look at him. He was also very tall. He was uh, six foot two, six foot three, about the same height as Washington. He was quite thin. Uh, We don't have his weight. He was probably between 160, 180 pounds. Um, He's described in his youth as being freckled and gawky and his hands being large and would uh, walk in a loping gait and had poor posture, uh, does not have military experience. So if I describe Jefferson, the image that comes to mind is in high school, the kid who sits slouched over in the back of the class, who's 
really tall, not paying attention that much, but can basically answer any question the teacher throws at him because he's so intelligent. So if, a, if there's a way that Jefferson is going to win this battle with Washington, it's not has to do with strength. It doesn't have to do with size. It doesn't have to do with military tactics. Um, I think the only way he could win is if it came down to intelligence. Um, he's probably the most intelligent president that America has ever had. He could speak seven languages. He knew Latin. He knew Greek. He knew French. Uh, probably knew German. He could play five musical instruments. Um, he wrote the Declaration of Independence in his 30s. He was an inventor. He invented the swivel chair. He invented a revolving book stands, a polygraph machine, uh, a spherical sundial. Uh, he didn't patent any of these inventions because he wanted them to be used by others. He was a lawyer. He was a philosopher. He was a mathematician, an architect, an archaeologist. Uh, yeah, so this, in terms of sheer intelligence, that would give him an edge. And anything else that he could do over Washington, um, Washington and Jefferson had a strong beef with each other, although that would probably give the edge to Washington between the two. Uh, he secretly uh, spread rumors against Washington because um, he was trying to bring down uh, Alexander Hamilton and mm -hmm. uh, the Federalists and their whole economic program. So he paid journalists to write an opposition to Washington. He started a whisper campaign that Washington was senile and in the clutches of Hamilton. Um, not a good, not a good thing to start a rumor campaign against Washington because Washington knew how to be a spy master and could get his own intelligence and figure out who was saying all these different things. Uh, so the two did not like each other very much. So that anger between the two would probably work in Washington's favor. Washington, you have this rugged, uh, frontiersman, uh, and then Jefferson, he's what I consider like John Adams and John Quincy Adams is the foppish dandies, the, the, the thin gentleman who can drink their, um, uh, what's that, what's that Portuguese wine that they're always Madeira. drinking at Benjamin's Madeira. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. They're drinking their Madeira. Uh, Washington probably prefers rum like a good colonial back <laughs> at the time. So, uh, I don't think you have to guess too hard, John, who you think won this fight. This was, who this was brains versus brawn on this one. I would say Washington would have them in one round. Yes, absolutely. So, uh, now the next, um, fight I want to mention is, um, well, I'll let you set this up, but, um, this is not so much brains versus brawn, but, uh, uh more of a battle of gravity. This is, this is, a, a skinny, a slim, let's say this is a slim Barack Obama versus a giant William Howard tap. This should be an interesting fight. Yeah. Yeah. So if we're talking about 30 versus 35, um, Obama, when he was president is six foot one, 180, And you know, he's a healthy guy. He's probably even thinner, um, 10 or 15 years before he's president. William Howard Taft is not. Uh, when he was president, he was five foot eleven. He was three hundred and forty pounds. Uh, if we're being generous, so that he is literally twice the size of Barack Obama. Um, uh, in terms of military experience, Obama had none. Um, Taft also didn't serve, but he was Secretary of War from nineteen o four to nineteen o eight, and he enlisted in the Connecticut Home Guard for World War One for whatever that's worth. Uh, okay, so I'll mention uh, Obama first. So didn't have military experience. He um, does have some martial arts training. Um, he practiced Taekwondo in Chicago from 2001 to 2005 when he was a professor and a part-time senator. His instructor was um, a financial planner named David Posner, and he had to say this about Obama as a practitioner of Taekwondo. He said he remembered his former student as very disciplined and diligent, and he had good footwork. Uh, he only got up to green belt, which isn't too high up there. But when in 2009, uh, Obama was awarded an honorary black belt by the South Korean president. So if honorary degrees matter, then you have that going for him. Uh, unfortunately, Taekwondo is um, really based on doing high punches, high kicks, those types of things. And he's dealing with an opponent that probably has the power of gravity, um, holding it more than anyone else. Um, so, okay. William Howard Taft, let's get this out of the way. He was a very, very fat man. There's the famous story about him getting stuck in the white house bathtub. So hmm. he, um, actually promised to his constituents when he's running for president that he would try to lose weight, but he, uh, overate in the white house due to depression and ended up gaining weight. 
but in his younger days, before he was president, he um, was a little bit more strapping. He was the intramural heavyweight wrestling champion uh, of Yale oh, while yeah. a student. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, as a fighter, if we consider him uh, due to temperament, he would probably be a man of restraint. Uh, he was a originalist in the constitutional sense. He believed that presidents should only do what was explicitly written in the Constitution. So he comes from sort of the class of the John Tylers who thought that the mark of a good president wasn't so much what they did do, but what they didn't do. So he's in pretty stark contrast to his predecessor, Teddy Roosevelt, who wanted a much more robust uh, executive office. Uh, in fact, afterwards, he became, he became Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, Taft I'm talking about. And he considered this position much more important to his legacy than being the president. And he even said in letters to his friends that he hardly remembered the presidency. Uh, and he said, and he said something that relates to him as a potential fighter that I am a man of peace and I don't want to fight. But when I do fight, I want to hit hard. Even a rat in a corner will fight. So uh, between those two, between Taft and Obama, this one is a little bit closer, but the winner is eventually. William Howard Taft. That's interesting. Yeah, I could see Obama coming out with high kicks and great footwork and just working this guy and working this guy and working this guy. And Taft is just kind of circling around, just watching and watching and watching, waiting for that one opportunity. And then he puts 350 pounds behind a fist. It's all over. Your next one. LBJ versus the Gipper, Ronald Reagan. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Coriant has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Coriant has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of plan investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Coriant's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Coriant.com. How does this yeah, one this turn Yeah, this is interesting out? because... Um, in our contest, we found a lot of the modern presidents really didn't do that well. Uh, Obama goes down pretty quickly. Uh, George W. Bush goes down quickly. Um, there's a few dark horses. Um, George, Bush 41 actually did quite well. He was a former head of the CIA. Uh, we don't think of him as a young man. We think of him as the septuagenarian president. Uh, but I want to talk about a few more comparatively modern presidents, and they actually did quite well in this contest, and they were both big guys. Yeah, we haven't uh, so I'm going to talk about Reagan Bush first. Yet. With Reagan, uh, so just a bit about him. He did a military service. He was in the Army Reserve and the U.S. Army Air Corps, which later became the Air Force, it was called. He was a captain. Um, served uh, in the Army Reserve from 37 to 42 and had stateside service during World War II from 42 to 45. Uh, Reagan was very healthy, and he was very athletic. He grew up in small-town Illinois. Uh, he worked summers as a lifeguard from 27 to 32. By his count, he pulled 77 people from the water to safety. Hmm. He, was, he played football in college as a lineman at Eureka College. Uh, he was known for his determination, despite being overmatched against larger opponents. He was captain of the swim team. He ran track. He was a horseback rider. He would have liked to play baseball, but he had really bad eyesight. Um, one account of his life, just to show you uh, his excellent health. In 1981, there was an assassination attempt against him uh, with John Hinckley Jr., mm -hmm. who fired six shots at him. Uh, think this He was very mentally ill. He, he tried to impress Jodie Foster, wasn't he? Yes, exactly. Uh, he'd watched Taxi Driver a few too many times. Um, so a few of those shots, they hit Reagan's press secretary, a Secret Service agent, a local officer. Uh, one hit Reagan and bounced off his seventh rib that punctured and collapsed along. 
So when Reagan got to the hospital, he's bleeding, bleeding profusely. I think he bled out about three pints and there wasn't a stretcher to take him in. So he just stepped out of the limo and walked himself into the emergency room. Mm-hmm. Uh, he didn't mention the bullet to the doctors. He just complained about experiencing difficulty breathing. And when Nancy showed up to the hospital and asked what happened, he just Reagan responded, well, just forgot to duck. I forgot to duck. Uh, uh, (laughs) During his own surgery, he occasionally interrupted to remove his oxygen mask and joke with the surgeons and (laughs) said, well, I hope you're Republican. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I heard that. But one of his doctors or one of the surgeons um, commented that a lot of 70-year-olds, which is how old he was at this time, would have died. But he had the physique of a 30-year-old bodybuilder. So uh, not too much in terms of combat experience or fighting experience. Uh, he appeared in a number of Westerns, so that might translate well to uh, riding a horse and then mimicking fight scenes, and then you wait for your stunt double to come in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, he chopped wood now, a lot, too, at, at his ranch, I believe, which kept him in shape. Right, so very healthy. Um, LBJ also um, had a bit of a ranching background coming from Texas, and... LBJ fascinated me because um, it wasn't so much his combat experience, although um, he was in the Naval Reserve. He was a commander. He was a very big guy. He was foot three, weighed 210 pounds when he was president. Um, what interested me for LBJ was the psychological aspects, playing head games that would get into um, being an effective fighter, which is what made him um, what I think is one of the most effective politicians, whatever you think of his policies and the huge biography on LBJ that Robert Caro is writing gets into it. And that's what I'm fascinated by. And I want to mention in terms of how he would be as a fighter. So, uh, he had a very imposing presence. Um, he just commanded attention. Hubert Humphrey said that he'd come into a room like a tidal wave and sweep all over the place. Um, he, Knew, he just had an instinct for getting into the innermost truths of whoever he was dealing with, whether it was buttering somebody up or tearing somebody down. Uh, there was a phenomenon that LBJ became famous for called the Johnson treatment, where it was a manner of persuasion, um, whether it was buttering someone up, whether it was bullying them, where um, he would just kind of get into people's physical space. He'd wrap an arm around a colleague's shoulder. He'd straighten a senator's tie. He'd nudge and punch his chest and stick a spear of forefinger into his shirt. He'd lower his face closer and closer to a subject's face. Um, he'd shake hands and practically crush their fist. There's pictures where you can see of LBJ where he's leaning over someone with a smile that kind of looks like a shark smile. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's, but yeah, what Robert Carroll would describe that as is um as the head of the senate before the senate before he was the leader of the senate it was dysfunctional they couldn't pass laws after he left it was dysfunctional they couldn't pass laws as it is today but while he ran it he never lost a vote he knew how to call up people's number he knew how to um promise sweetheart deals to people promise kickbacks threaten blackmail so as a fighter, um, I don't think anyone could do better than LBJ when it came to physically taunting someone <laughs> and kind of mm-hmm. like the Michael Jordan way on the basketball court when Michael Jordan, he, in terms of all the technical skills that make you a great basketball player, one of the best in terms of verbally trashing people and tearing them down psychologically, also one of the best. So, um, yeah, and then one episode that I can't leave out, Robert Caro mentions in his biography of Johnson. Uh, he he calls it a Rabelaisian earthiness. I love that description, <laughs> where he would, um, if the urge took him, he'd urinate in the parking lot of the house office building with the Secret Service around him. If a colleague came into the Capitol bathroom as he was finishing, he'd sometimes swing around with his member in hand and kind of shake it in hand and taunt him, saying, like, you ever seen anything as big as this and just uh wow i mean that's he that is a very confident man right there he was an in-your-face texas good old boy politician no doubt about it and and tough in a lot of ways yeah so he knew politics is a rough game and he played it well so yeah grew up in rural texas 
tough upbringing. But um, yeah, so those were the two combatants, and this one was very close. But in the end, Reagan narrowly beat out LBJ. Uh, glad to hear that. Teddy Roosevelt versus Abraham Lincoln, and I think Lincoln's probably the toughest guy in this bunch. But Teddy Roosevelt, he's no pushover either. This is going to be interesting. Yeah, we have uh, two out of uh, the four faces on Mount Rushmore. Uh, in fact, I guess we've covered all the Mount Rushmore people here. The other, Washington and Jefferson, yep. also fought each other. So this was one of the very final fights in uh, the tournament we had. All of these people were winners of their respective bracket in the Midwestern tournament, uh, Southwestern, Northeastern, Southeastern. Yeah. Southeast. I, I forget game. My tournaments mixed up, but, uh, this is much, this is much trickier. Um, let's look at Lincoln first and then let's look at Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, so Lincoln was our tallest president. I think he was six, four. He had a disease called uh, Marfan syndrome. Uh, it affects your, physical physicality but also affects your mood it can cause melancholy and a lot of historians think this is the reason why lincoln suffered from this throughout his life but the disease also causes you to be taller than the average person and have longer limbs so when you see lincoln in those old pictures with civil war generals he's towering over everyone else around them people with this syndrome are usually weak but lincoln grew up in the midwestern frontier he spent thousands of hours chopping wood he built his first log cabin when he was seven and according to one contemporary of lincoln who lived in his uh, hometown of new salem illinois if you heard trees in a clear fell in trees in a clearing you'd say there was three men at work by the way the trees fell so that's lincoln chopping wood and he has a very high power to weight ratio and um when Lincoln began, began to rise in national politics in the late 1850s. There were these stories that circulated about him being a really capable wrestler in his youth as a frontier wrestler. And one story sticks out, and I think this relates best to him as a fighter. Uh, these stories surfaced during the 1858 debates that were part of his campaign for a U.S. Senate seat. But anyway, the story about uh, him as a wrestler has to do with him in Illinois in his early 20s when he had settled in the frontier village of New Salem. He worked at a general store, but he was mostly concentrating on reading and educating and preparing to be a lawyer as a young man. So Lincoln's lawyer was a storekeeper named Denton Offutt, who would boast about Lincoln's strengths. Even though he was six feet four and he was scrawny, um, he was much tougher than he looked. So his boss would always boast about how tough Lincoln was. And at one point, Lincoln was challenged to fight Jack Armstrong. He was a local bully. Um, he was a local bully. He's a leader of a group of miscreants known as um, uh, Clary's Grove Boys. Mm -hmm. And the townspeople tried to get Lincoln to tussle with Armstrong. And Lincoln first refused because he didn't want to stir up trouble. But he finally agreed to a wrestling match. And uh, the object was to throw the other man. Uh, according to one version of the story... Armstrong tried to trip up Lincoln, figuring he could get him on his height. But Lincoln was annoyed by these dirty tactics, so he just grabbed Armstrong by the neck and shook him like a rag doll. Yeah. And when it, so when it looked like that he was going to overpower this, um, the, this kind of the boss, this gang, the cohort, the cohorts of Armstrong, they began to approach. So Lincoln, according to one version of the story. He stood with his back to the wall, and he announced that he'd fight each man individually, but not all of them at once. So mm -hmm. Armstrong broke in. He ended the affair and said that uh, Lincoln had bested him in the contest. But that's just one fight, but apparently Lincoln was the county's wrestling champion. And the type of wrestling I'm talking about, you're, you might think of freestyle wrestling or Greco-Roman or whatever it is you see on the Olympics. But this was a wrestling that was a pure test of strength. So candidates would, or uh, combatants would lock horns to show their strength in front of an audience, usually gamblers or drunks, whoever was around at the time. Uh, so it was more like hand-to-hand -hand combat than sport. Yeah, no holds barred, so, right? Right, absolutely. So Lincoln, um, apparently he fought hundreds of these types of contests, and he had a reputation in New Salem as the county's wrestling champion. And I think in the Wrestling Hall of Fame, Lincoln was inducted as an honorary inductee sometime 100 years after his death. So <laughs> there you go. Uh, professional wrestler in that way. But let's get to Teddy Roosevelt. Um, there, wow. 
where do I start? Um, sickly as a kid. Uh, yeah, sickly kid. Um, the story goes that um, he was asthmatic. This was usually a fatal condition in those days. Nearsighted. He had these big, thick bifocal or big, thick lenses. He had upset stomachs. He had headaches. A lot of people thought he would die at a young age. So a doctor comes and visits his house and he tells young Teddy that he needs to lead a quiet life. So Teddy refuses. He decides that he has to do the complete opposite of that. Um, he decides to train in boxing. He um, engages in what he later called the strenuous life. He built, he and his father built a gym where he practiced weightlifting. He uh, practiced rugby. He engaged, he went running, hunting, fighting, and he tried to live as strenuously as he possibly could, thinking he could beat back his illness. And really, I mean, he basically did. He joins the rowing team at Harvard. He won Harvard's intramural light heavyweight champ or lightweight championship. During his European honeymoon, he scaled the 15,000 foot Matterhorn. He was a cattle rancher. He was a deputy sheriff. Um, he uh, continued to spar throughout his political career. Explored the Even Amazon, when he was a, didn't he? You... Yeah. Yeah, he explored the Amazon um, after, I think, um, his failed run as a third-party candidate. Uh, this is where he came down with an illness that weakened him probably through the rest of his life. But at one point when he was president, he would practice sparring in the basement of the White House. And he was boxing a young artillery officer who smashed a blood vessel in his eye and was nearly blind in his left eye for the rest of his life. Uh, another story from his days as a rancher in North Dakota. Um, one evening, there was a drunken cowboy who came in and sized up Teddy Roosevelt, just thought of him as this rich dude rancher from the East Coast. And he um, re referred to him as four eyes. And the cowboy thought he'd be wealthy and weak. And he demanded he buy drinks for the whole house. And um, so Roosevelt took one look back at him and started laughing. And the cowboy was confused. And as he was kind of dumbstruck, Roosevelt punched him twice in the jaw with a left jab and right hook and just knocked him right to the ground. Uh, when he was a rancher, too, he found uh, three men who were trying to steal his boat, and he arrested them and spent 36 hours straight bringing him back to a local judge instead of just shooting them on sight. Uh, you could talk about the Spanish-American War, this time with the Rough Riders. Uh, but probably my favorite Teddy Roosevelt story, and I have a lot of them, and I have a son named Theodore that's not completely due to Th Theodore Roosevelt, but you can kind of tell where my sympathies lie. But probably my favorite story is that when he was running as a third-party candidate for the Bull Moose Party, Roosevelt exited um, his vehicle. He waved his hat to the crowd. A would-be assassin shows up to him. He takes out his Colt reviver, revolver and fires he shoots Roosevelt and the bullet went three inches into his chest and it would have killed him except the bullet went through his jacket pocket, uh, where his thickly folded up speech was and his steel eyeglass case was too. And then Roosevelt, he'd been shot, but he decides to go up to the stage. He announces to the crowd, ladies and gentlemen, I don't know if you realize this, but I've just been shot. And he shows uh, the crowd his thickly folded up speech uh, with the bullet hole through it, but he doesn't mind. He continues to give his speech for 90 minutes. He was an amateur anatomist, so he thought, okay, I'm not coughing blood, so a lung hasn't been punctured. Then after his speech is done, and his aides around him are worried what they should do, and every time they get close to him, worried that he's going to fall over, he shoots daggers at them, and they back off. And then when he starts to feel dizzy, then he leaves and checks himself into a hospital. So um, he's a tough, I mean, they just don't make presidents like that anymore. One what can you say? Cookie. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, that's, so I want to leave it to, what do you think? If you had to choose between Lincoln and Roosevelt, who would you pick in the fight and why? There's no doubt about it. Uh, Roosevelt was a tough guy. Uh, he was, he was basically uh, a, a, a cowboy in every sense of the word. I think he was tough and I think he would have hung in there, but I think, uh, I think Lincoln with his height and his reach and his just overall strength, I think uh, Lincoln would have taken him, but it would have taken a few rounds to do it. That's kind of where I would be on it. Well, we'll never know. And th that one's tough because you can make a case either way. Um, the eventual voting in the contest was that Roosevelt won. Ah, okay. And 
And I'll, um, and if people want to listen to the whole series, they can find out the grand champion. Um, if it was, or wasn't one of these contestants, um, yeah, it's, it's really hard. I mean, you can make the argument. Another factor of Roosevelt is that he was one of the first Americans to get a belt in judo. Uh, he trained with a member of the Japanese embassy, uh, in this sport and he liked it because, um, he saw that you could, if a boxer were to go against a practitioner of judo, he saw that the person practicing judo could eventually win if it were no holds barred. But we don't know. Like you said, Lincoln um, had incredible power to weight ratio. Um, so a great case is to be made in all of them. So, but at least amongst the voters, uh, Roosevelt was the winner in that particular fight. Okay. What are the big takeaways you got from looking at all 44 presidents fighting each other? Yeah, so the idea for this contest was silly in the beginning, but when James Early and I were getting through the contest, we noticed that the people who made it to the finals match up very closely to the C-SPAN poll of the greatest presidents when you look at non-physical factors like moral leadership, economic management, working with Congress, all these other things. And we wondered, is there actually a strong correlation with good pres presidents who are good fighters and overall good presidents as we understand them today. And conversely, the people who did terrible in the fight contest, James Buchanan, Warren G. Harding, uh, who are other bad presidents, um, you know, John Tyler, people like that, they also got knocked out of the fight almost right away. So is there a connection between these two? And I think that there is. And this isn't a new idea. People have argued since ancient civilization that moral greatness is connected to physical greatness where, um, I think Plato was a wrestler and he mm -hmm. praised the mental health benefits of physical exertion. So the ancient Greeks had the Olympics because they saw this as not just a physical contest, but the virtue of a man, there's a connection between physical virtue and moral virtue. And, uh, Hippocrates said that eating alone will not keep a man. Well, he must also take exercise and JFK. He, was the person that gave us national physical standards and K-12 education. And a big reason why we have physical education is because he argued that Americans aren't tested physically like they were in the frontier days or the age before the automobile. And we have to constantly exert ourselves and we have to lead what Teddy Roosevelt called the strenuous life. If we fall behind physically, then we can't be a great nation. And he was probably thinking in terms of Cold War competition and keeping up with the Russians. But he thought, we're not going to be a great nation if we can't keep up physically. So, yeah, I think that there is something to that, that um, it's a silly idea of all the presidents beating each other down. But the qualities that make some, that cause someone to keep in shape like Teddy Roosevelt, I think also arguably made him such a visionary leader and why we celebrate him today as a great president. So I think that there are some practical takeaways from that. Yeah, well, you're, your story is fascinating. It does give us some really unique insight into different U.S. presidents. I've enjoyed it very much. I hope we can have a sequel to this someday. But that's been good. <laughs> I, had a, I had a side story I wanted to share with you about uh, Reagan. And that oh, yeah. Is, uh, my dad was a sales manager for GE Large Lamp Division out in L.A. And that's where I grew up. I grew up out in Pasadena. And at one point, he uh, he was given the responsibility to General Electric had a, had a, sh a show going on the television called GE Theater. And they gave the responsibility to my dad to hire a host who would uh, live uh, pitch GE lamps, whether it was Christmas lamps or you name it, whatever time of year it was, that he was to give a good pitch on lamps. And he interviewed Reagan for the job and got to know Reagan. Of course, Reagan got the job with that. That later led to a host job with, with Death Valley Days. And he became good friends with Ronald Reagan. Uh, he and my mom and Reagan and Nancy would go out to dinner and dancing. And he said that at least at that time, uh, in the early 50s, Reagan didn't drink. He would, uh, I think he did have a problem with alcohol before that possibly, but by that time in the early 50s, he had quit. And he always carried around what looked like a drink with a stir stick, but it was 7-Up. <laughs> but he said he was, a, <laughs> he was a good man. You were talking about moral honesty uh, with these fighters, and uh, Reagan was a good moral man. That's one thing my father would always tell me, that, uh, you know, have your beliefs and your values and, and stick by them and stand up for them. 
and he did well as a fighter too. So again, I think there's an interesting correlation here. Makes you think. Well, thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, we'll get together uh, soon on other projects. I know it's been a very, very good time being able to share this time with you and learn a lot about our president. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much, Scott. Appreciate it. And uh, there'll be more ideas in the tank. All right. Sounds great. Looking forward to it. <laughs> thank you very much. Bye-bye. That was our interview with Scott Brank, the host of History Unplugged podcast and the Presidential Fight Club podcast. You can find his podcast wherever great podcasts are found. At Facebook, he's at facebook.com forward slash history unplugged podcast. And don't forget to send your reviews our way for 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries, and for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, and for 1001 Stories for the Road. All three are active shows in our 1001 Stories Network. And if we did another Presidential Fight Club, who would you like to see in the ring? Maybe we could do a First Ladies Fight Club, or Presidential Contenders Fight Club, or a Vice President's Fight Club. Let us know at facebook.com forward slash 1001heroes. This is your host and storyteller, John Hagedorn, and we'll be back soon.